This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, Ontario, uh, electricity rates have been increasing and the government says it is taking actions to alleviate the burden of consumers via a 25% cut, which is basically just spreading the cost out to uh, a greater period of time, much like your mortgages if you get it extended. Uh, Andrea Horvath's NDP plan uh, says that she give, uh, she would rather give money to the citizens, not the banks. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, I guess the accountability office wants to know exactly how much this is going to cost. Uh, NDP think the privatization, as I mentioned, is the issue. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? Hello there, Scott. I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Um, you know, it's interesting when you talk to the different parties and, and what they will do and how they will react to, uh, to the situation regarding the electricity file. Um, I found when I was talking to the NDP energy critic and even Andrea Horvath, it was less about uh, the whole renewable energy deals and all that sort of thing. And they pretty much put this square on privatization, uh, even though we've heard that uh, the privatization of Hydro One uh, really hasn't affected the prices at this point. But is what role has privatization played in our electricity system? So every time I talk about this, I step on landmines, so hopefully I won't ruffle too many feathers today. I've got to take you back to 2001-2. At that time of our lives, uh, Ontario was facing brownouts, and we actually saw the government of the day, the Conservative government, install temporary generating capacity. I know because I was involved with the hospital board, and we hosted one of these temporary generators and made a little money doing so in the summer of 2002. Our energy consumption back at that time was going up three and a half percent a year. And so first the Conservatives and then the Liberals, when they got elected in 2003, saw this demand going up for electricity, a shortage in our generating capacity, and a worry about whether the government could borrow enough money to build generating capacity. So they made a choice, and that was to see if the private sector would build this capacity. The private sector said, yes, we would be happy to take the risk and, and build this, but we need some kind of a guarantee coming back. And so the government said, well, that's fine. We'll guarantee you a price for your electricity because, again, we can see where these electricity prices are going, 3.5% a year over five years. You know, we know where this is going with certainty. So the government sent, went to the private sector but signed 20-year fixed-price contracts for the electricity. It's not privatization in and of itself that's the problem. It is that what we thought was then going to happen over the next 20 years has not materialized. No one, no one, Scott, absolutely no one could have forecast that 2005 was the last year of our energy going up, our energy consumption going up. In fact, today, in the year 2017, we Ontarians consume less energy than we did in the year 2000. So here you had a situation where the government was scrambling to build enough capacity, signed all the contracts, and then just as the ink dried on the contracts, you and I started consuming less electricity. Why was that, Marvin? Why did that happen? Two sides to this. One is just general conservation measures. Uh, you know, we were all told to, to buckle down, and so we put in the LED lights or the, the um, compact fluorescent lights. But also technology makers. If you think of our society, we use a lot of, or we think we use a lot of electricity to fuel things like computers and smartphones. These things are more powerful than they were back in 2003, but they also consume less electricity to deliver you all that powerful results. No one foresaw that coming. I can tell you here on campus, we have a computer lab which has a uh, ventilating system because we projected what the heat from these devices was going to be like. We were going to need virtually the ability to cool the Arctic to take that heat out. And, of course, the opposite's happened. We have these powerful computers that generate virtually no heat at all. No one foresaw that coming. So today, 2017, what do we have? We have a system that can generate 30,000 megawatts a day. Now, your first reaction is that good, is that bad? Well, in a typical day, we consume 18,000 megawatts a day. On a peak day, either a really, really cold or a really, really hot day, our consumption goes up to 23,000 megawatts. But we've got 10,000 megawatts a day that we just don't need. And that's really the key problem. It's not the privatization. It is that we sign too many of these private contracts. And if you can think about the gas plants in Oakville, once we say, oh, okay, all right, we've got too much, great. Okay, private sector, I want to cancel that contract over there. They say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You signed a 20-year deal. We need the payment for the next 20 years. We can stop generating electricity for you, 
but you still got to pay us for this because we took that gamble for you. Why could you not see this coming? Why could you not see the success of conservation programs? Why could you not see the cost involved in signing these deals? You know, it's a good question, and and all I can say to you is it's like trying to have me tell you when the stock market has hit a peak and then is going to go in the opposite direction. 2005, it went up the way it was supposed to. 2006, our energy consumption froze. And, of course, you could explain it, oh, that was a cool summer, that was a wet summer, the winter wasn't as mild, so okay, 2007 it went down a little bit, oh, well, that's just because of this, but it'll, it'll turn around, it'll go back, and it's now only really 10 years later that we can say, no, those, those short-term trends are now permanent trends, and our consumption went in the opposite direction. Now, could we have known this in 2008, 9, 10? Yes, I think we could have, but already those plans were in position. Just one other quick thing, Scott. Uh, uh, we talked about privatization. Now, another, I'll call it, myth of our energy system is green energy. So this was a big initiative, again, of Dalton McGuinty back in 2005-06. We were going to be a leader in green energy. This is wind power, solar power, what have you. Today, today in Ontario, green energy only represents 7%, 7% of our generating capacity. It does represent 11% of our cost. So, yes, it is expensive power, but it's not really what's behind these high energy prices. And also, much of that green power, the private sector, quote-unquote, that built it, are neighbors of ours. So, for instance, I know a church in Beamsville that put solar panels on the top. I know a, a business owner who has a, a like a laundromat kind of affair who put solar panels on top of his building. The wind power of, installed on some farmer's properties. This isn't exactly Samsung raking in the big bucks. These are our neighbors raining in these big bucks. And so what, again... Uh, Andrea has said, and, and Minister Tebow has said, is we're going to look at all of these contracts, but literally there are thousands of these contracts if we can get out of them, if we can renegotiate them, but we don't have the time to make that happen. And that will take 10 years to go through all of those contracts and try to find ways to renegotiate them. We need action, and we need action now. What about not signing new ones? Yes, that would make perfect sense. Like, see, that's the part that gets me, Marvin, is that we admit a mistake. We admit that, you know, I mean, here, you know, you're saying conservation, lack of demand is the reason the prices are high, less about re, uh, uh, renewables. At the end of the day, it's about lack of due diligence and no cost analysis, is it not? Um, I, I'm going to say back in 2005, the diligence was just fine. I, I'll give you another part of my life, Scott. When I was on, involved with the board at Hamilton Health Sciences, we actually now generate our own electricity at Hamilton Health Sciences. We can operate, even if the rest of the city is down, we burn natural gas to generate electricity, and under certain favorable conditions, we actually sell it back onto the grid. When we did the business case for that in 2002-03, we projected what things were going to look like over the next 20 years. The problem is those projections on which much of this was done have proven to be false. Could we get revised projections? Yes. And in our situation, we did take a look at them again by about 2008-9. We saw that the world had changed. It still made sense for us to do this. But the question you're raising is a good one. I, I Honestly, if I was the government today, I would not sign one more green energy contract out there. If there's a chance for me to shut some down, I would shut it down. I don't really quite know why we are giving people $5 to buy compact fluorescent light bulbs. If you want to do that, great. But why are we subsidizing you? We actually need people to consume a little more electricity. That would actually make the situation better. The fact that they have not, the fact that they're doing all of this other stuff, but not stopping signing new new contracts, does that not prove that they still don't understand the issue here? Yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to give them one little bit of doubt here, and that is that most of the new contracts they're signing are so small that they're really not adding megawatts. They're not even really adding a lot of kilowatt power to the energy. So I think what they're trying to signal is we still want to be an environmentally friendly province. We signed the Paris Accord saying we're still going to do some things for the environment. So they want to be seen as doing that. Uh, but the contracts they're signing now are so small, they're not really adding that much to the problem. The bigger question is, how do we right-size this system? So the two plans are actually quite different. The the liberal plan says, all right, to the extent we have spent money, we were going to amortize this over 20 years, just like you might amortize a mortgage over 20 years. Hmm, you know, we can reduce the annual cost if we amortize it over 30 years. And I understand that. I, I've recommended that to some people who have found themselves unable to carry a mortgage as a way to get around this. Yes, you pay more interest in the long run, but you bring the annual carrying cost down. So I understand that plan. 
Andrea's plan is a little more hand-wavy to me. Um, she starts off the same as the Liberals do. We're going to give you the 8% back on the HST. Andrea also generously throws in 5% that the federal government's collecting without any guarantee the federal government will do that. But, okay, there's 13%. To get the next 17%, Andrea gives you some examples. So one of the things she says is it is unfair for rural customers to pay a higher distribution charge than urban customers. Now, I have a little problem with that because um, in a rural customer, you have, say, kilometers of wire per customer, whereas in a city, you have hundreds of meters of wire. Naturally, it would cost more to maintain that infrastructure. Why is that unfair that we're asking people to pay for it? But she says it is unfair, so she wants to bring the rural residents' hydro bill down by bringing their distribution costs down. Okay, how are you going to do that, Andrea? Well, the answer is that our um, hydro generation companies, and these are truly hydro generation, generating electricity from water flowing through mm -hmm. and around dams, they actually pay a rent to the government to put those dams up and operate them. That rent goes into the general operating coffers. She says, I'm going to take that out, and I'm going to use that money to subsidize the distribution costs for the rural customers. Okay, that's an interesting idea, although it is tax dollars now subsidizing electricity costs. We are kind of mixing the two uh, as we go. The other thing Andrea is throwing out is the idea of eliminating time of use. The whole concept of time of use for electricity was to try to bring our peak consumption down and spread it out more during the day. Again, you know, if I told you before, 18,000, typically 23,000 on peak. If we just use 20,000 all day long, I could design a grid differently than I have to if I have to design for that 5,000 megawatt peak. Um, she is correct in saying that time of use has not even demand as much as we expect. And inadvertently, it's really increased the cost of electricity to the business sector, which does tend to operate during the highest hours of the day. So her proposal is to say that people can opt out and pay one flat rate. Now, that one flat rate is higher mm -hmm. than the minimum rate at the moment. She says 10.3 cents a kilowatt hour. The budget office says that, that would, should really be 11.1 cents a kilowatt hour. But, okay, if I do that, I'm, I've gotten rid of that nuisance. I can run my washing machine whenever I want and my, uh, my uh, dishwasher whenever I want. But I'm not quite clear how that saves me money because... I'm paying more for the off-peak, I'm paying less for the real peak, and I'm not really paying the same overall. But somehow through this, she's hoping to get another 17%. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure I see where that's coming from. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, lots of chatter uh, since uh, Premier Wynne announced her refinancing plan uh, for her energy mistake, and both from the Conservatives and, of course, the NDP. Andrea Horvath says she thinks that we should be giving the money to the citizens, not the banks. Uh, she wrote an op-ed piece in the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, NDP Hydro Plan gives money to citizens, not banks. Horvath to talk more about all of this. Leader of the Ontario NDP, Andrea Horvath, and she is with us now. Hello, Andrea. How are you today? I'm well, thanks, Scott. How are you? You. Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So is it, and we talked to your energy uh, critic uh, not too long ago, just last week, and he was saying that uh, he believes privatization is uh, at the root of our high electricity prices rather than renewables or infrastructure upgrades or that sort of thing. It, do you think privatization ha has been the, the main thrust of this problem? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we started to see the increase in our prices uh, after the Harris government began the privatization and deregulation in our in our system on the generation side. Uh, the Liberals have continued to sign very lucrative contracts, lucrative for the private companies, mind you, not for the people of Ontario, um, all through their their uh, uh, their time in office. And of course, when they brought green energy into the mix, uh, that was all privatized as well. Uh, when you look at Manitoba and Quebec, the provinces on either either side of us, they've they stayed completely public, uh, and their rates are less than half of ours. Their bills are far less than half of ours. And so uh, it's pretty obvious that, um, that the privatization has built in uh, private profits. And so when we pay our electricity bills, we're not just paying for electricity. We're paying for the, uh, the profits of private companies and foreign companies. Uh, all parties have governed this province in the last uh, several decades. 
Um, and all parties seem to neglect the electricity system and just shove this off to the next government. You know, and at the end of the day, from what I'm hearing, we needed a large amount of capital in order to upgrade the system because previous governments just kept punting it down the road of all stripes. So how is it better in public hands when, we, when you know, at the end of the day, leaders are just going to do what they need to do to get elected, much similar to the way wind is, what wind is doing now? Well, I mean, the, the, the difference is we're, we, were, we were paying for and are paying for uh, not only the cost of fixing our system, but building in the private profits that but are nobody, being made by those companies. But, nobody, but, nobody, fi- but nobody fixed the system, Andrea. That was no, the problem. That's how we got a, to where we are. Well, no, I mean, I think this is a liberal talking point that uh, happens to be uh, what the liberals are saying. Uh, look, did there need to be investment in the system? Absolutely there needed to be investment in the system. Did we need to pay premium prices so that we could build in the profits uh, for private companies? Definitely not. Manitoba has never had to do that. Quebec has never had to do that. In fact, our, our electricity system was operating in the public interest for over 100 years. Did there, were there some problems? Absolutely. Did things need to be addressed? For sure. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't uh, convert our system into one that's so expensive that people can't put food on their table because they have to pay their hydro bill. Uh, and then when you find you're in political trouble because you've created such a mess and people are, uh, are up in arms, uh, you don't kick the foot down the field to the next generations. You take a look at what's gone wrong in the system, you own up to it, and you fix it. And that's why we put a plan together that does exactly that. Our plan brings $7 billion back into public hands. The Liberal plan uh, pulls another $40 billion out of, uh, of, uh, of our, of our ratepayers uh, and gives it to bankers. Uh, is this about privatization or just lack of due diligence on their part? Uh, you, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you, these were bad deals. Is it is it a case of privatization or just signing bad deals? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's it's a. I would say it's a bit of both. I mean, again, uh, privatization means you have to build in private profits. Whether you build in a little bit of private profits or or you know millions and billions of private profits, which is what the liberals have done. Um, you know, either way. It's the same thing. You're building in private profits and you're paying an electricity bill now that's not just about uh, public power, not just about electricity for the benefit of the public, but it is about uh, electricity that's now, you know, paying for uh, return on investment for shareholders uh, in the the private sector. Again, uh, I I get it that we, uh, that's our economy. We we run that kind of economy where where people, uh, you know, they engage in in private uh, business and they make private profits. And I'm all with that. That's cool. But when it comes to things like necessities, like our electricity system, uh, I believe that those need to be run in the public interest. It was done for over 100 years here in Ontario, as I've said before, uh, and there's no reason for it to have been uh, dismantled by the Conservatives and then continued on by the Liberals. But again, you know, had been neglected, which is how we got to the brownout. So is a little bit of profit better than public neglect? But, but, but again, I think you're, you're, it's a false choice that you're suggesting, that you, that you can't achieve uh, the fix to the system with a public system. I, I disagree with that fundamentally. I think it's a, it's a false premise. I, I think the system could have been addressed and could have been fixed uh, and, and, and maintained as a public asset. Look, 80% of the people of Ontario don't want to see Hydro One sold off. That's the next shoe that's about to drop. Uh, as they continue to sell off the shares in Hydro One, we're going to see more and more profits built into the transmission side of our electricity system. So they're making things worse. They've made things worse already. Uh, but the next shoe is about to drop as, the, as Hydro One continues to be sold off. And, and that's the other thing in our plan, is that we would reverse that. Uh, is buying back shares of Hydro One the answer? Uh, that's what we believe. In fact, the uh, the plan that we have will bring $7 billion back into the, the public purse, uh, which is what should have been happening in the first place. Look, the Financial Accountability Officer has said that the sell-off of Hydro One puts Ontario in a worse financial position. They didn't have a mandate to do it. Nobody knew that uh, they were voting when they voted for the Liberals that the Liberals were going to sell off Hydro One. Um, and so they, had, they didn't have the permission. So the other thing that our plan does is put in place a requirement for a referendum. So we're not only going to buy back Hydro One, but we are going to say that no other future government in the province of Ontario can ever sell off uh, that uh, asset that generates uh, you know, revenues for the province without a referendum. What about the cost to buy it back, Andrea? Won't that be more than obviously what we got to sell it? 
Uh, no, in fact, uh, what we've done in terms of our plan is uh, earmarked the uh, the dividends that uh, that we're currently earning from uh, what's left of uh, the public part of Hydro One uh, to buy back those shares. And so, uh, the, you know, the the thing that our our plan does is contemplate uh, either exactly, well, I mean, we did our numbers based on today, but our plan also contemplates whether those shares increase in price or whether more shares get sold off because we don't know what the government plan is. Uh, and so we contemplate all of those eventualities and our plan still is able to uh, provide uh, revenue back to the people of Ontario. It'll just take longer to get there. Uh, again, when I was talking to uh, your energy critic, there didn't seem to be a lot of chatter about renewables or the whole Green Energy Act. It was more about privatization. How do you deal with renewables? These are all private contracts. Uh, how, how do you finance renewable? Well, I mean, this is a, this is a, a problem that uh, the Liberals created when they decided to implement the Green Energy Act with all private contracts. I mean, we, we thought that bringing renewables onto the grid was a smart thing to do. And in fact, most people, I think, on a, as a value statement, think that renewable energy is a, a, a good thing. But mm-hmm. what the government did is create havoc, right? They pitted neighbor against neighbor, family member against family member, farmer against farmer, and, and created a situation where people now hate the idea of, uh, of renewable energy. And that's that is so irresponsible. And so, yeah, we have a lot of uh, a very um, expensive contracts in the green energy sector, uh, and we're going to try to aggressively uh, neg- renegotiate some of those contracts. Our problem that we have right now, we don't know what those contracts look like. We can't get a hold of them. We try to FOI them. Government won't let them, uh, let them be released, or we get you know, just pages and pages of blacked out documents. And so we have to, uh, uh, we have to make the commitment to do some ag- aggressive work and, and see if we can't uh, renegotiate some of those terms. And you know what? This is not like what the Liberals did with the gas plants. If you remember, I mean, it cost us over a billion dollars because sight unseen, they made the promise they were going to rip up those contracts. Uh, What we need to do, though, is look at those contracts. And if there are situations where the penalties uh, are, are, you know, getting basically paying out the penalties to get out of a contract is less expensive than staying uh, in that contract, then then we'll look at that uh, possibility. Uh, There needs to be a complete review of what this uh, Liberal government has signed away uh, to to their friends and and, uh, and they're, they're well-connected buddies in the, in the uh, energy sector. Will you continue to sign these uh, renewable deals? Well, that's a good question. In fact, a number of those uh, uh, of the deals, not only renewable, but um, you know, some of the more traditional sources of energy, I'm thinking gas and uh, things like that, are actually up for um, mm-hmm. renewal, uh, up for renegotiation, or they're basically coming due, if you will, shortly after the next election. And so we're going to be taking a look at each and every one of them. Why? Because our system is oversupplied. We're giving away energy uh, to our neighbors to the south at a fraction of what we've paid to generate it. Uh, and it's a bad deal for Ontarians. We have a, a massively oversupplied system, uh, and we need to look r- really hard at, uh, at how we get the oversupply out, because we're paying for it in our rates. Could we have seen the oversupply coming, Andrea? Absolutely. Absolutely. We could have seen the oversupply coming, but the government was uh, too intent on, on, you know, forcing forward an agenda uh, that, um, that wasn't a good deal for people uh, when it came to the way that they brought the renewables on the grid and when it came to the way that they negotiated uh, a number of their contracts with their energy buddies. And so now we're in a situation where we're oversupplied uh, and we're paying uh, top dollar for that energy. Well, at the meantime, it's, it's being, uh, it's being um, you know, purchased just on the spot market because it's oversupplied. Like we're, we're dumping it on the spot market for far, far, far less than what we've paid to generate it. Uh, we certainly all know about uh, Premier Wynne's refan- uh, refinancing of this deal, uh, but she has not said that she has stopped signing new deals. She yeah. said she's negotiating better ones. Again, will you stop these deals? Will you continue these deals considering, as you mentioned, we're at an oversupply point? Oh, no. I mean, hey, look, we're the ones that don't want to be writing any deals with the private sector. Look, if we're in an oversupply system and we own all of the generation as a public utility or as, as, a, as a public uh, crown corporation, then if, if, we're supplying too, if we're generating too much electricity, all we've got to do is start generating less. We don't have any penalties. We don't have any problems because it's our energy system. We're the ones that are generating it. So we're the ones who, who don't want to sign any more deals at all and get rid of the deals that we have uh, where possible with the, the private energy interests. 
it, it, just, it's just, it just makes sense for us to control our own destiny when it comes to something as important, and not only to families and, and, and individuals, but to our economy as well. Um, uh, we certainly know how far we've come. Uh, we're off coal. Uh, there's wind turbine farms everywhere you go when you're driving out of, uh, of the urban areas and such. Uh, would, we be, would we have been able to pay for what we have and be where we are if it wasn't for the private system? Would we be able to have done what Kathleen Wynne has done, uh, whether you like it or not, with public money? Well, look, I mean, the reality is the government can borrow money at a much cheaper rate than any private en- entity. Uh, and so, so, yeah, I mean, the difference is they, they don't show it on their books. But what they, but we we still have to pay the uh, pay the premiums on it, and so that's that's the big difference. It's a, it's a shell game. They're hiding, you know, the capital side uh, in terms of the debt on the capital side because they're they're burying it in these huge contracts. But we all pay the price, anyways. I mean, it's not like we're going to get away from paying the paying the cost. And so, yeah, absolutely, that's how other jurisdictions do it. I mean, that's how Manitoba does it. That's how Quebec does it. Uh, and that's uh, that's how. Ontario should be doing it as well. Is it fair to compare to Quebec considering the hydroelectricity resources they have compared to Ontario? Well, I mean, look, we have some good hydroelectricity resources as well. Uh, there's no doubt that there are different systems in uh, Manitoba. There are different systems in Quebec uh, in terms of access to uh, the, the, the types of energy they have access to. But it, it doesn't negate the fact uh, that they've uh, that they've built their infrastructure as a public entity, and they continue uh, to be publicly, uh, you know, kind of responsible uh, for the, um, you know, for the generating and the distribution of power. Um, you know, we we could be doing the same thing here in this province, uh, but unfortunately, but first the Conservatives and then the Liberals have taken us down a completely different path, and now, you know, now we're at the situation where people are making untenable choices. You know, do I pay my hydro bill or do I fill fill the prescriptions for my family? Do I pay my hydro bill or do I put food on my table? That should never be happening in a province like Ontario. Uh, the Auditor General, uh, less critical about privatization, but more critical about overpaying for things to the tune of $37 billion. Do you think that the argument of lack of due diligence and cost analysis outweighs the privatization? Obviously you don't, but what are your thoughts about those two comparisons? Well, I mean, I think there, I think it's, the, it's, the, it's two peas in the same pod, right? I mean, and yes, I, I do agree that, uh, uh, that there is a huge overpayment, and that's what we talk about these bad contracts, these contracts that are uh, that are completely out of whack compared to market prices. Uh, but again, uh, we wouldn't be paying these contracts if we weren't privatizing our electricity system. And so, yes, I agree with the Auditor General, but I also think that the root cause of this $37 billion is the privatization. Uh, and again, not to repeat myself, but, you know, from what I'm being told, privatization was needed to cover the cost of, the, of neglect and beefing up the system, but you don't buy that. Uh, no, I don't buy that. Uh, and in fact, again, I'll just go back to the reality that governments can borrow money at a cheaper rate than any other entity. That's just the facts. Now, you can quibble about whether the government wants to show on their books that they're doing that, but the bottom line is we pay more uh, just to, to, uh, to keep, um, you know, to keep a, a political uh, game going when it comes to what we're paying for our energy and, and how much we're in debt for it. And so I, I just think people are, are, um, you know, are deserving of a more open system, a more transparent system, um, and why should they be paying more for something that government can uh, can achieve uh, with uh, with paying for paying uh, by paying less in terms of interest? Last question, Andrea, and I appreciate it. Uh, the refinance that Wynn is doing, how do you think this is playing with the public? Do you think that the savings is enough to make them forget? Um, well, I mean, I guess uh, I guess the the proof will be in the pudding once the savings start to roll out, which apparently is going to come somewhere in June. Um, we the, the, the challenge we have is we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, they, there's not a single scrap of paper that the government has provided, uh, so we don't know you know where it's all going to land. Uh, but I can tell you this: people are pretty fed up. Uh, with uh, Kathleen Wynne and, and the decisions she's making, which seem to be more about her political well-being, uh, you know, her political skin. Uh, if she gets into political trouble, then holy smokes, there's got to be a fix. Meanwhile, people have been, you know, being crushed uh, under the weight of these hydro bills for, for some time now, uh, for, for well over a, a year, probably three years, uh, when I think about how these prices have increased. In fact, 50%, they've gone up 
since she's become the premier, uh, which has only been four years. And so, you know, I, I think people are pretty cynical, and I don't blame them. I don't blame people for being cynical about uh, about this latest move because, once again, it's about Kathleen Wynne, it's about the Liberal Party, uh, it's about their fortunes, their well-being politically, uh, as opposed to really having given a darn about the people of Ontario uh, over the last couple of years. Andrea Horbath has been with us, leader of the Ontario NDP. Andrea, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure as always, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter lately over spying and hacking and information traveling from one source to another. New documents released by WikiLeaks allege... Did you see this on the news last night? New documents released by uh, WikiLeaks allege that there's a CIA surveillance program that targets everyday gadgets we use. This program, it's alleged, can turn our devices into recorders uh, and, you know, record our conversations, whether it is a toy, a phone, a TV, a car. Who knows? But are they doing it to you? Uh, Doug Harris is with us, Insignius Strategic Group terrorism expert and on the line with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Oh, doing fine. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for taking the time. We always appreciate it. Uh, Should we be more concerned with WikiLeaks or the CIA spying on us? Well, I was going to say, I was just asking my refrigerator that. But, uh, <laughs> um, now, did it answer? <laughs> that, that would raise other questions, wouldn't it? That's right. Uh, if, it rush, if it answered you in a Russian accent, I'd be concerned. <laughs> yes, uh, this is obviously pretty grave stuff. And as you say, there are at least two uh, levels of examining this. The uh, first, of course, what the CIA may be doing and uh, related to that, uh, what any number of other intelligence organizations, even terrorist organizations, might be doing. And then the second big one, uh, what about WikiLeaks itself? Uh, what's going on there? What are the implications of this kind of leak, assuming that the WikiLeaks claims themselves uh, be accurate? Altogether, though, uh, if you assume there is accuracy in this, there's a quite a complicated series of issues. First of all, as you've said, we have the so-called Internet of Things that could be used to spy on us, and that would include, uh, and this is not news in effect, the possibility that uh, things like refrigerators and, needless to say, uh, anything that holds a microphone, so our yeah. iPhones, our uh, other forms of smartphones, could themselves be turned on, could be triggered remotely by people of whom we know nothing, and those who could be, of course, enemies of our own interests, whether national or personal. And uh, as uh, WikiLeaks has gone to some lengths to underscore, if virtually anybody could be vulnerable to this, that anybody could include uh, those of the highest levels of government, their relatives and loved ones, Uh, On it goes, and that giving, therefore, one would assume, at least if you have this kind of capacity, a near universal look in to the policies and processes of government and into the private lives of all concerned, which then raises a particularly insidious possibility, and that is that even if, say, given decision-makers now and in the future are aware that they have revealed things through uh, what they may have communicated by voice or email in uh, in their own systems, that those things may now and may have for some years been under the control of uh, alien entities. And what effect could that have then on their decision-making? Let me give you a possible example. We've heard something about Russia lately, as you know, in the United States context in particular, and they've been known for many, many years to have an aggressive and fairly capable uh, penetration service electronically and otherwise. So what happens if you're some kind of decision-maker? You're a parliamentarian, and uh, you are aware that you may have revealed things that could be embarrassing, maybe just about other political colleagues uh, in the course of some of the Uh, unseemly exchanges that seem to to go on in these realms. Um, Even if nobody has made representations or threats to you about your own history, you may be well aware that you could be vulnerable. So would you tend, therefore, to avoid getting involved in debates that might 
look at seriously examining the, in this case, Russian threat. What about China? Would that apply? Will we start to find that there are great dark holes, shall we say, where there should instead be uh, vigorous discussion and examination and revelation uh, in our public policy, in our lawmaking. Uh, this is potentially an insidious thing, and, uh, you know, <laughs> that is before we look into any number of other revelations that have come out of this, including the fact that uh, it's alleged that Frankfurt, Germany, and the consulate of the United States there is being used as a major uh, clandestine uh, uh, communications monitoring hub, uh, and that covering not merely Europe, as significant as that would be, but also the all-sensitive Middle East. Are we worried about uh, are we worried about the CIA because the fact that they can access, access our information this way, or are we worried because if they can, then obviously Russian, uh, Russians can, and rather than spying, perhaps they should be working harder to make this all more secure? Is that the point that WikiLeaks is trying to make? It is very definitely a point that uh, WikiLeaks has made in its uh, analytical work uh, accompanying this release. And it's important to note, incidentally, that WikiLeaks refers to this particular release of information as being the first in what seems to be a series. So one holds one's breath in imagining what could follow and uh, what kinds of interests could be compromised, including the safety interests of some of those who've been cooperating or collaborating with the CIA on this. But there's a far bigger issue in many ways. The United States is clearly a highly civilized country. It's an open democracy. That's, I dare say, one of the reasons why this material was able to get out. People, whatever the serious risk they might be taking in leaking this kind of thing, would not uh, expect to wind up in the uh, proverbial Stalinist basement of the Lubyanka NKVD secret police with a bullet in the back of the head. Um, And so one wonders what China, what uh, Russia, other authoritarian and totalitarian regimes are actually pulling when they have the entire resources of a nation-state, and uh, of course in the case of China, a nation-state whose resources increasingly seem endless and whose uh, military and other aggressive propensities are well-defined, to be pursuing even more aggressively and maybe ultimately with even more invasive technology the private and public interests we have here in Canada and elsewhere. So there's a a real risk that as much as it may be relevant to consider the CIA and other arms of U.S. government in this kind of important regard, we must never, ever lose sight that there are infinitely less appealing elements that are presumably at work on our government and ourselves even as we speak. So so should the CIA CIA have disclosed these vulnerabilities so people could fix them, uh, as opposed to, I I guess, as WikiLeaks is assuming, using them? Well, WikiLeaks is claiming, interestingly enough, um, and some of this was reported, that there was an undertaking by the Obama administration to reveal to uh, a number of U.S.-based main uh, high-tech producers and uh, actors like, I think, uh, you know, Google and uh, uh, Apple and so on, any of these zero-day, as they call them, uh, exploits or or potential weaknesses. Um, One of the assertions WikiLeaks therefore makes is that uh, the evidence they've now claimed to adduce reveals a breach by the U.S. government of those undertakings. It's hard to know to what extent that uh, is actually accurate, but it's it's so complicated. Um, On the one hand, the WikiLeaks people would make the good point that if a vulnerability should exist in a given system, especially a widely used one, and here you start talking about things like Apple, um, then Uh, that vulnerability would presumably be accessible to other and not necessarily even highly sophisticated penetrators. Uh, On the other hand, you can see why the CIA and the NSA and others, including perhaps some of our own uh, signals intelligence uh, organizations in Canada, would feel that they might want to collect, without revealing these things, these vulnerabilities so that if in an instant... Uh, There should be, for example, some 
crisis, a security crisis, a terrorist crisis, where you suddenly need to break into intelligence systems or communication systems that you may not have uh, formerly been aware were a risk, you would be able to because you have these exploits available. So I sort of, in a way, I'm sympathetic to both sides, and at the moment, leave it to the philosophers to try to figure the uh, equities out on that one. So is WikiLeaks doing us a service or making things more complicated? Well, they're certainly making things more complicated, and there are all kinds of questions that have surrounded WikiLeaks, including uh, some allegations uh, that WikiLeaks uh, is a channel of Russian intelligence. Mm. Now, I've seen no proof to suggest that they are an advertent or intentional or premeditated knowing channel of Russian intelligence. But I suppose an argument could be made that functionally, if they are, perhaps inadvertently, uh, a conveyance for Russian secured information of this kind, uh, then or Chinese or other, then uh, you know you have uh, an obvious bias, it would seem, in favor of the uh, supplying countries and the regimes against uh, those Western uh, nations and systems that tend by definition to be a little more open and, uh, and loose. Uh, so it, it is a, it's a really interesting question, and I think many would like to know a good deal more about WikiLeaks. Some have heard similar concerns expressed about, or at least analogous ones expressed about, some of the brand name uh, self-styled human rights organizations, the names of which you and I would recognize in an instant, where if you look at some of their international reports, they may uh, spend uh, far, far more column inches on uh, small-l liberal democratic countries than they do on gross totalitarian regimes like China, and at that, regimes that are much bigger in population terms. Hmm. Well, there is a partial explanation for that, of course, that the Western liberal democratic countries are the low-hanging fruit in some of these issues. It's easier to get information from them about some of these issues. Um, and so, in a perverse twist, the worst players on the international scene can come off almost seeming better because, again, they get less coverage. So it is a very complicated situation, and you're right to ask whether that complication could have grave ramifications. I think, I think indeed, it could have, especially these kinds of revelations tend necessarily to be a little one-sided. So is WikiLeaks helping the free world? Are they fighting for truth and justice? Or are they just, you know, poop-disturbing? Well, I'd have some uh, major concerns and have had for some time. There is this uh, appearance, possibly, of, uh, of bias, um, and it can, I think, distort general perceptions of uh, threats and where cyber and other threats are primarily coming from and will increasingly be coming from. So that's a worry. There's also the question of the review of information and sources before they release this kind of material. And they claim in, again, their analytical work with regard to the most recent releases that they have uh, gone to some lengths to try to ensure that they're not, in this case, uh, releasing cyber weapons, as they call them. In other words, some of the zero days uh, computer programs that could themselves be used against uh, any number of innocent people. But one of the difficulties many of those of us who've been interested in intelligence have noted years ago with WikiLeaks and some analogous efforts is that uh, it may not be within the range of understanding of those to whom such information is leaked, like WikiLeaks, the nature of the consequences that ultimate release of this information worldwide could bring. And so there have been questions about whether, without any exaggeration, people's lives have uh, been placed in jeopardy, including uh, the lives of some of those who may have, with the most admirable uh, of motives, collaborated with the CIA and other organizations in the West. Um, I've seen some things that, frankly, I found chilling as I reflected on the ease with which it would appear that certain terrorist and foreign intelligence operatives could, I believe, have uh, traced certain people and other sources 
that have been mentioned in some releases. Uh, we have had some indications that from one or two releases, uh, the Taliban may have, for example, set up a special unit designed to try to work out who may have been uh, collaborating with the American military and others in the course of, uh, I believe it was the Afghan war. Uh, this is, of course, not a game, and it's not child's play. And uh, when authorities, intelligence authorities, go about reflecting on what information they can release under standard request arrangements, such as access to information or, in the States, freedom of information, you ultimately have some of the most highly specialized intelligence people, highly familiar with the specific file, themselves having to refer to other um, intelligence organizations at home and abroad uh, with similar expertise before they would themselves even consider releasing some of the information. And there's a reason for that. So even the reassurances from those who ultimately may be reasonably well-informed intelligence observers uh, still will not have the kind of capability and insight that one needs operationally to know whether, in fact, you're going to inflict inadvertently terrible damage on people and worthy institutions. What's in this for WikiLeaks? Well, they presumably uh, feel that they are contributing to openness, to accountability and transparency of governments. And uh, Are they heroes in this? Well, I suppose to some people they might be considered so. Uh, if those are the motivations or the exclusive motivations, then one cannot blame uh, them on that level. But, of course, that's not the way we tend to measure um, uh, approaches to the world, including in, uh, for the purposes of criminal law. Um, your intentions may be very important, and they are in criminal law. But depending on the specifics, they may or may not get you out of the issue of certain kinds of uh, criminal definitions, and they most assuredly won't render you free of allegations of possible negligence. And uh, remember that, of course, negligence can bring about some hideous results, as we know from everyday life. Do, do people, does this turn people against the CIA? Do people think that Americans are spying on Americans as opposed to other people? I mean, do they think they're spying on friends as opposed to foe? I mean, this has been going on forever, has it not? Well, I think everybody, I'm speaking very loosely, of course, but everybody tends to spy on everyone else because they um, have to protect and preserve the national interest of their country. And needless to say, the national interest of any given country is going to vary, even if only in minor particulars from that, of every other country. The histories are different, the constitutional makeup's different, and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, countries can be extremely close, but there is this tendency to at least want to be aware of what's going on in other countries. And sometimes the motivation for this uh, may not be at all uh, wicked in any sense. Um, one might be concerned, for example, that an allied country, as reliable as the U.S. government, the CIA may regard that country as being, uh, might itself be at risk of leaking secrets that the U.S., that the CIA may have shared with that allied country, and not because the allied country has any... Uh, uh, unappetizing motivation. It may just be that they have been penetrated themselves. So uh, I think there may have been an example a while ago of U.S. intelligence having followed what was going on in Germany at a very high level. And I think, according to the public reports, this may have stemmed from a concern that uh, Germany had been penetrated at that kind of level. And, uh, of course, any suggestion of penetration at, uh, of Germany uh, would come with uh, extensive historical precedents. Uh, we had seen, as you well know, during the Cold War, all kinds of uh, penetration of um, uh, cabinet level and higher uh, government reaches there, and given the fact then that the Americans were sharing all kinds of information with the uh, Germans, well, you can see the temptation and maybe from a reasonable American perspective the necessity of following what some of the allies might be doing. So, David, where does this go from here? Uh, what comes out of this? 
Well, uh, I mean, there have been all kinds of statements about how there may be blind panic at the CIA, and uh, that very definitely would be a very reasonable kind of outcome. Um, the first order of business, of course, is going to be a combination of trying to search out who the apparent mole might have been responsible for this. WikiLeaks claims that there may have been an individual who was perhaps a contractor or in a group of people upon whom the CIA may have relied for the building of the kinds of exploits and penetrating systems we're talking about. So you've got to sort out. Uh, what the reliability of your own people, current and former, may have been, what source of information they may still have in hand, what could be yet to come, because if some of the information currently released or yet to come may pinpoint certain establishments and individuals, there may now be lives at risk. Uh, terrorists, for example, uh, may now, according to the releases, conclude that fr the Frankfurt consulate must be struck. Um, again, that's serious stuff, needless to say. So you've got uh, that kind of thing. You then have to wonder whether any of your computer exploits or uh, any number of other elements in your computer bag of tricks remain uncompromised. Um, and then what are the ramifications of that? Again, a great deal will depend on who, whoever may have been connected to this and what they had access to, access being the key element, whether it's in counterintelligence or uh, other realms of intelligence. So you start with that, and then you have to reassure your allies. Recall that, of course, uh, it's often said that the road to survival in the current situation, whether with hostile foreign counterintelligence or terrorism, is uh, information and intelligence sharing. How often have we heard that in the wake of 9-11? It's a core truth. But if people look at the holy of holies, in a sense, of information holdings, the CIAs in other words, and find that people seem to have rummaged through uh, their laundry, then foreign countries and intelligence services may think, well, dare we share in the way mm. we formerly had been. Canada itself has faced exactly that kind of issue and question internationally when we've had leaks and when we've had espionage aimed at us and not that long ago. And who knows who's swimming through our various government uh, servers. So these are the kinds of things one has to look at and try to rebuild. David Harris has been with us, Insignia Strategic Group and Terrorism Expert. David, thank you for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. A pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.